Welcome to the L&D Career Club podcast, where purpose-driven people come to start and grow the L&D career of their dreams. I'm Sarah Canistra, an L&D career, business, and executive coach, and I'm here to take you on a weekly journey to create a seamless, energizing, and engaging L&D career blueprint so you can live a life of fulfillment, inspiration, and freedom. If you're here to find your first L&D role, move up the L&D ladder, or land that high-level L&D role you've been dreaming of, welcome to the club. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the L&D Career Club podcast. Super excited that y'all are here spending some time with me wherever in the world you currently are. Today's episode is going to be so fun. I'm so pumped for it. I had a total fangirl moment when I was interviewing our guest. But before we get into today's episode, just want to remind y'all that Nail Your L&D Niche Live is going to be kicking off on the 29th of this month. So November 29th, we will have five live sessions. I am so excited about this. We're doing this straight up workshop style. So if you've been in any of my programs before, you know they're typically a mix of asynchronous work with some live Q&A. What we're going to be doing differently this time is that every single session, you're going to be walking away with a piece of your niche. And by the end of the fifth session of the fifth workshop, essentially, you will have crafted not only your niche statement, but also this blueprint to help you find and land your new role. This is going to be so, so, so important, especially as we're going into the new year, which is wild to think about uh, that we are already talking about that, but it is true. This is going to really help you set the stage for finding and nailing that dream L&D role. It's going to give you that North Star and that direction to make sure that the roles you are, are applying for are actually the right roles at the right companies for you. So if you feel like you've been throwing spaghetti at the wall, hoping something sticks, if you've been applying to lots of roles and not seeing a lot of success, this could be a really, really great place for you to start to make sure that you are in alignment, that we're moving into this next year from that place of total alignment. So pre-sale is going to end on the 15th of November. So right now, that full two-week workshop, five sessions, they'll all be recorded by the way too. So if you can't make them live, You'll have those sessions available, recorded for you. Right now it's on pre-sale for $333. There are payment plans available that will go up to $555 on the 16th. So make sure that you are signing up for that. It is the last time we are doing a large group coaching program ever. Uh, we're going to be bringing them all inside of the LD Career Club going forward. So if you've been wanting to get into a group coaching program, want to see what your niche is, understand what the right role at the right company looks like for you, this is the program. It's the time to do it. And I'm super excited too because I have uh, one of our newest coaches who just joined us, Taryn, will be co-facilitating with me as well. So, so excited about that. And like I mentioned, I am so excited about today's episode because we have the one, the only Matthew Daniel from Guild on here. I know, I know. I was freaking out too. Uh, So for nearly 20 years, Matthew has consulted on talent development, talent management, and HR tech strategies for Fortune 500s including companies like Nike, Boston Consulting Group, Chipotle, Allstate, Cigna Healthcare, Microsoft, Walmart, General Motors. Sounds like if you name it, he's helped there. Uh, Matthew currently serves as a senior principal of talent strategy at Guild. It's probably where many of you know him from. And there he crafts solutions at the intersection of skills, career pathways, mobility, and equity in the workforce. Matthew also serves as a member of the talent management culture and diversity subcommittees of the Defense Business Board, where he advises the Secretary of Defense and Deputy Secretary of Defense on the latest in talent practices. OMG. This conversation is so great. We have so much fun. We get to talk a lot about career mobility, what that means, what that looks like, what that looks like in terms of aligning that in a career strategy and a talent development strategy. And we also hear a lot about Matthew's own journey and his own experience. I know that I learned so much from this episode. It was such a learning experience for me, and I can't wait for you all to dive into it. Matthew, welcome to the L&D Career Club podcast. I am so excited to have you on. How how are you doing today? Yeah, I am great. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be on and to chat with you. It is exciting times in the world of learning and talent development. So anytime we get a chance to talk about it, I love it. Thanks for, yeah. thanks for the chance to come chat. 
For sure. And I think too, it's, it's so important to hear other people's stories about their own journey into learning and development as well. And I know for many of us who've been in the field for a long time, there's some, almost some accidental falling into it or happenstance. And, you know, I think nowadays too, people are are actively seeking this out as a career. We see so many now degree paths in uh, yeah. in learning and development, not just instructional design too. So I know many people are familiar with who you are. They're probably fangirling like I am right now. Uh, they know about all the work that you're doing in talent strategy and career development at Guild. But before we kind of talk about what it is you're working on now, I'd love for us to really dive into the mobility of your own career um, and taking us back to the beginning. So I went to your your LinkedIn and I saw, you know, there was like 16 previous experiences and I scrolled <laughs> all the way to the bottom. Um, and I saw that your LinkedIn career, at least, started as a retail assistant at Joy Dell's. Uh, so I'd love, for you to, I'd love for you to take us back, take us all the way back to Joy Dell's. Um, oh. And talk to us about like how, like where your career kind of started yeah. you know, from the job perspective, how you ended up landing in L and D because it wasn't far after that that I, I saw that you were in the in that the training in L and D world and yeah. then walk us through really what led you to where you are today. Take us yeah, back. I, I mean I'll go that, that Joydale's in Whitehall, Arkansas is way back for sure. Um, so that was like the, those were friends. We I grew up in a home. Um, we didn't have a, a ton of money uh, growing up. And so like, I started working at a really early age. Like I, I think I was 14 when I started working at Joy Dell's um, with Love assistant. It. And I just wanna, I wanna put a plug here that um, I actually put those pieces on my profile. Our, CE, our CEO at Guild just talked about um, how many of us start our professional journeys in the public world, in this like post-college world and we, don't connect to frontline employees in the way that we should by only even telling our story and how that starts. The pieces of who we are and the skills that we, um, many of us built in high school and college and early career through these frontline jobs. And so that stuff just went on my profile a couple of months ago. At I love it. My CEO. Yeah. Uh, so th that was it. Like it was a, it was a, beauty place across the uh across the street from my junior high school that I could walk to a couple of days a week after school and so that's what I did to earn some extra income there were things that I wanted to do uh I had an opportunity to make a trip to Europe uh when I was a kid and my parents were like hey that sounds like fun and also we don't have the cash for that so mm -hmm. so go and do your own thing so like I'll just do the fast forward version which is I did that for a little bit and then um, I ended up in like food service and catering for a summer. And like, I just had these kind of jobs along the way where I got to learn a lot about interacting with people and high pressure environments, whether it's retail or food service. Um, one interesting job I had in high school was working for a manufacturing facility and some folks uh, quit at the last minute. And so I was you know, 16 years old, handing payables, handling payables and receivables for a small company. Like, I don't know who thought that was a good idea to put me in charge of that or like making decisions on uh, how to account for insurance costs in paychecks. I was 17 when I had that scenario. So like all those things I had to problem solve. I had to figure out and be in high pressure environments. I, you know, through college, I started working in ministry. I was in ministry in those days. My dad was a pastor. A youth and worship pastor. And so I did a lot of public speaking and training on leadership. It was a part of the culture of our church. We did a lot of um, leadership development within the walls of the church. And so I didn't know it was a career. Like I, I got a BA in history. Yeah. I didn't know that learning and development was a thing outside of like being a teacher in a school or what you did at church. And, um, and so I, applied for a job. I was going to go be in ministry. That was the original thought about where I would go. And um, there aren't many places to work in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, in that area. One of them is the Pine Bluff Arsenal. And there was a Homeland Security contract there where um, they needed just support personnel. I'm, I did graduate first in my college class, but the job I got was making copies. Like that was my <laughs> first job. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your academics were. Like if the jobs are only available, the jobs are only available. So I took that job right out of college and went through a train the trainer boot camp. Here's where it like really intersects with L and D. 
is I went through a train the trainer boot camp that had about half the week on facilitation, about half the week on instructional design. And what jumped out to me in this boot camp, um, I just did it as like a fun development activity. It was not like I'm going to change my career. And when I took that week long boot camp, I ended up like I learned about Gagne and Kirkpatrick and Bloom, some of which still stick around today. Some have been replaced. I learned Addy. I learned all those things in this boot camp. I started practicing facilitation throughout the, the week. And, and like ultimately the experience for me showed me that those things that I had learned informally through trial and error, like teaching on leadership in the church for many, many years, it turned out there was a science behind it. And there were ways to be intentional with the design in a way that like increase the likelihood that that knowledge and information st stuck in the mind of the learner and that they went and did something with it. And so um, the company I worked with at that point was called GP Strategies. And we were doing um, Homeland Security. And then I went to a DOD contract. And then the great thing about a learning outsourcer like um, GP Strategies is that you get to move back and forth from contract to contract. And so I spent the next seven years kind of growing up through the field of L&D. I, I had, you know, two years where I did um, instructional design and I did it first for ILT experiences and then to job aids and then to e-learning and kind of grew through that and then uh, moved into project management with GP, which let me go into, I was at Pharma, I was working with Bristol-Myers Squibb, LaxaSmithKline, I was working with Nike and Cigna and Microsoft, all <laughs> for short stints of time. But it was a really interesting experience. And then kind of on the other end of that, I started to get into learning technology. Everybody was kind of running away from learning technology. It was really yeah. scary at the time. The concept of SCORM scared everybody out of their minds. And <laughs> I, I, think thought, it still I think it still scares people. <laughs> and for good reason. And for yeah. good reason. For, for different reasons. For different reasons. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I, um, I just said, you know what? I think I'm going to make a career out of learning technology. But when I look back on those years, that led me to GP uh, to uh, Capital One, where I led learning technology, uh, learning design, innovation, and then that led me to consulting on my own, and that led me to Guild. Um, fast forwarding through that part, but I think the part that I just would like focus on is the importance of those initial skills that I got in high pressure environments, interacting with clients, solving problems, the things I learned in college that were really important around like research and writing and articulating arguments. Um, and then the things that in that first series of jobs at GP Strategies, I didn't recognize, I didn't even know what like a rotational program was at the time. But what I essentially had was a seven year rotational program where I worked across industry verticals. And based on the contract needs, sometimes I was the editor, sometimes I was the instructional designer, sometimes I would moonlight back in facilitation and like deliver training again. And then project management. And then once you do that project management and you're working across all the different L&D functions, you end up in this um, client relationship management position and strategy work. And so it's this rotation that let me go into so many different areas and really explore the parts, get, get pretty deep expertise in how it works in different businesses, look and see the connection points and then figure out how I wanted to pull it forward. So yeah, it's been a long minute since retail assistant it. at Joy Dales, but here we are. Thank you for that yeah. question. Yeah, you're so welcome. And you know, it's it. I always like taking it as far back as we can. And what a beautiful way to kick us off too about talking about you know that that connection to the front line and how important that is, and reminding people too that you know we've we've all had those type type of roles, and and it's not about hiding it, but it's about owning it because the reality is so much of what we. You know, there's such formidable years of our of our lives. And I think I've had um Jess Amelie on the podcast a, a year or so ago. And she talked about how, you know, she worked at McDonald's and the drive-thru was training other people to be, you know, yeah. drive-through tellers essentially. Uh, and she didn't and she didn't think about it at the time, but really that that was a pivotal experience to think about working in a high pressure environment, having to train people while doing that, safety, all of these things too. So I I yeah. love being able to take it back and hear that I almost heard too, like like this idea of like you kind of like scaffolded, right? Of like you're taking these bits and pieces and you're creating this right. almost like ladder for yourself. It's not necessarily just going vertical, but you're really kind of able to to move around the, the scaffold to figure out, you know, what what it is you like and what it is you're good at. And at that I think that's such a special thing that yeah. so many of us actually have inside of us. But you you really 
took the opportunity to, to, to take a step back and say, wow, here's all these great opportunities. What does this, this mean for me? So I love that. And it sounds like you've had a very mobile uh, career. And so that's really a topic I would love for us to dive into today is this idea of career mobility and more specifically, you know, what ownership we have into our own career mobility, if any. And so before we dive any further into you know, what, what I want to talk more about today, I'd love for you to, I like, just set like set the, the playing field, essentially, like, how do you define career mobility? Like, what is your official definition of that? Yeah, uh, my official definition is something along the lines of this, which is the ability for someone to get access to a job that makes their life better. Sometimes for folks, career mobility is actually about going from like shift work to fixed schedules. Or sometimes it's, I I think there are some camps that think of career mobility as economic mobility. It's in, I make more money progressively Mm -hmm. over time. And I mean, nobody doesn't like that. But ultimately, um, when we when I work with employers and they're talking about career mobility, I think one of the things that's important to not leave off the table is there are different seasons of life that we need different things. Sometimes as a parent, what you need is maximum flexibility. And so you need the ability to choose your own shifts or your own work. That's what career mobility means in that moment. There are other times that what you need is stability in the shifts that you work, or sometimes you need to move from you ultimately love being on the retail floor and you're a really good seller, but what you need is to sit down. And so career mobility sometimes means getting into a job that better fits what you need in your life. Now, ultimately, what I want to see always when I work with employers and I'm trying to help build programs is that it does create economic mobility and that it does create net new skills for that individual and for the company overall, but ultimately the definition of career mobility should be pretty flexible and defined by the individual and what they need. The question that I am always asking is how do we as a company facilitate that process um, through like creating tools, pathways, et cetera, to identify what it is that you need in your life and helping to facilitate that process, hopefully internally at the company you work at already. Yeah, I, I love that. It's it, I love how it has that fluidity to it, right? We think about mobility. It's it's not just about one clear cut way of being mobile. Uh, I think that kind of actually you know, is, is the opposite of, of mobile, right? It's more more static there too. So yeah. you know, thinking about and I feel like I think I've I've read I've read some of the things that you've written about this too, but. You know, do we, I guess, what ownership, if any, do we have yeah. in our own career mobility? Yeah. Um, this is, uh, um, you'll, you'll hear me talk about a concept often where um, you talk about problems that have solutions and dilemmas that have to be managed. Those are two different things. And when I think about ownership of career mobility, it's really a dilemma that has to be managed. Here's the deal. I can't force myself into new jobs. I don't have ownership of it all on my own. And the more marginalized you are, the the greater the likelihood that you didn't have access to college, you didn't have access to, uh, let's say, you didn't have a ton of free time to go spend with um, aunts and uncles who provided guidance to you or friends, or you didn't have a really good guidance counselor in high school. These are things that like limit career mobility. Ultimately, you also, there are ways to overcome many of that. But but ultimately, there has to be, it's almost like a, a combination of a lock that you have to go through. And so y- you can mount a lot of that up on your own shoulders and create your own career mobility through leaving or accessing school. But like, let's, let's not pretend that going to college is free. It's not. Mm-hmm. It takes money. If you don't have money, that's a harder thing to get access to. Or you want a promotion. Ultimately, maybe what you can do is work harder or longer hours. But even then, there is a group of people in a room somewhere that you're not at that are making the decision about who gets promoted. So is there, there, it is a shared ownership between me as an individual to do the work I can and need to do in order to create mobility. And ultimately, though, because I work with employers and my focus is at a systemic level, are we making the changes that we need to increase mobility for folks? Then then on one on the other hand, I don't have a lot of control over my own career mobility. If there are policies in place that say I can't move more than a job level or 
Uh, there are policies in place that say you won't help me reload out of my rural community and into a place where there are more jobs. Like all of those things have impact on my ability to access. But I think this is also where a lot of Americans have done a lot of amazing work to lift themselves in places, but not without systems that help them to do so ultimately. So it's it's a give and take uh, where both are true at the same time is, yeah, you do have ownership. Nobody can create mobility for you. And also it's really had, hard to have ownership if there are no pathways in front of you to take. Yeah, it's it's so interesting too. And it's something I talk to my clients a lot about if it's not just about the right role, but the right company too. And the right company, it's yeah. you know, values and all of that are important as well. But you know, are there are there policies in place? And sometimes you don't, you, you know, you can't get you don't you're not privy to that information, you know, before you start start a role as well. But I think when you're thinking about owning your own whatever ownership you have in your own career mobility, it's thinking about, well, what, what does that, what does mobility look like for me? So going back to what you're talking about before of, does that mean that I need to have a flexible work schedule right now? Does that mean I need to, you know, have, uh, you know, more, more money, like whatever that looks like and being able to know and ask, you know, figure out what questions do I need to ask in an interview process to see if this is actually going to be a place where I'm able to have that career mobility as well. So I think some of that, some of that piece could be put possibly on the person who's joining the company. Sometimes you don't find out till it's too late and you're already in. Uh, but yeah. thinking about going back to saying, hey, the definition of career mobility is very fluid and flexible depending on what it is you actually need in, in that particular moment or snapshot of time uh, that can allow you to possibly sift through some of that, the policies, the procedures, the the ways of working, the norms that might've been around for decades of that organization as well. So that just came to, came yeah. to my mind as a, is a possible way to not completely get around it, but to 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 sift sift you know sift it out a little bit. Yeah, I I want to just like there's an area I want to go to for just a second. When you yeah. when you think about my story at GP Strategies and the kind of mobility that I had there, I had a lot of coworkers who didn't have that. You know, G, GP was organized into business units, and so you very much stood inside of your business unit, and business would go up and down, and folks would get laid off. Uh, in those days, frequently, the company wasn't really good at moving people around. The reason I was able to move around was because I intentionally, like, I was always looking at the landscape and trying to think, well, like, oil and gas, And when I spent time in oil and gas, I spent time in pharma, they have ups and downs. And so, like, I was ultimately always networking across the organization where I would see somebody with an interesting title or on an interesting project, I would see a name come up and I would reach out and say, hey, can we grab coffee? Can I, I would love to meet you. I'd love to hear about your project. And um, that allowed me for the moments where there, it just didn't make logical sense for me to stay where I was anymore. There was some new skill set that I was wanting to learn. I had the relationships to help me navigate around the organization. Again, that is really hard. I talk a lot about frontline employees. That's really hard for frontline employees. It, it's really hard for them to see what else is going on. I had the luxury of being in some form of a white collar job. Most of the L&D lives in some form of a white collar job. And we have the ability to kind of see the work that's happening elsewhere through social internal platforms, Slack, et cetera. We can see projects and do a really good job of keeping connections. Even today, like I'm, there's not some other place inside of Guild that I'm trying to get. I have a color-coded calendar. I'm a nerd like that. And I can see yellow on my calendar is my cross-functional networking at Guild, which is my informal network to gather information and help determine where we are. And now it's about where I can plug in and add value. But in those days, it was very much about keeping that informal network so that I could have mobility when the moment came that I needed to make a transition. I had done the um, social connection work to open those doors. Yeah, and I think a lot of people... I was actually just talking about this with a, a friend prior to us hopping on of most people wait until not necessarily it's too late, but almost it's too late when they, when they want to yeah. make a move or they're ready, like, Oh, and not even necessarily if they're in a toxic situation or anything like that, but they're more of like, okay, now I'm, I'm ready. I, my life circumstances have changed. I, you know, I, I want this, this different type of career, but they haven't yeah. done, they have to, they're almost essentially starting from zero because they haven't done that work. And I think it's so important that, whether you're, you know, whether you're happy, sad, you know, looking for a new role or not, that focusing on the relationship piece is a huge part of that ownership that you can have. And it sounds yes. like too, part of that as well is, and we think maybe what our place in 
our place as a field in L&D, what role we can have in talent mobility is we do, we actually have you know, purview into a lot of that. So how do we start to create, this might be a question for you too, like how do we, like what's our role in in creating the structure and creating the space so people who are on the front lines who might not have quite the, you know, the insight into what's happening organizationally as we do, how do we start to create those spaces for people and those structures to be able to better connect inside the organization? Have you seen that yeah. done well? I, I think there are places, there are places who are experimenting, there are places that are a little further along. Let me just like, let me get super tactical on this for a Let's moment. The role of a LD professional, whether you're designing a course or facilitating a course, whether you are creating social spaces for enablement, whatever those things are, the best uh, role you can play in creating mobility is, uh, I'll say two things. Number one, the most obvious that latches onto what I was talking about a moment ago, which is, can you put, um, intentionally facilitate cross-functional, cross-level relationships in the organization? How is it that you can get frontline workers into the same program that a, a leader is? Or can you design your curriculum in a way that requires leaders to intentionally serve as mentors, not just managers, right? They, folks need access to leaders outside of their direct management line. They need other people to see their potential in order to help create space for them. So I think the more intentionally you can design the experiences to give people access to people in different parts of the organization who do different things, I think no matter where you are, if you don't know that the role exists and you don't know the kinds of activities that people do, how will you ever start to build the skills to get there? How will you know that's what you want? How will you find the programs to get into to increase the likelihood to get in there, right? We're not exposed to all of that. So I think the, the question that a, a learning professional can ask themselves is essentially, am I creating in the way that I design this, am I exposing one part of the org to another? a junior level person to a senior, uh, folks who need access. I think there's the, there's a second way that I just want to talk about from like, how does a learning and development professional, and this is especially those of you who are in consulting type roles, uh, internal to the organization, I still mean, but you're in a consulting role where you're advising who should get access to what learning and development. And this is something I am like relentless about but ultimately, we have, we being society writ large, um, and especially L&D professionals latched onto the concept that we should get super finite in which skills are available to which people. And it makes sense from like a financial perspective. Why should I uh, put somebody who's in a frontline role in an executive presence course, just to go as hyperbolic as I can on this, yeah. is like, why do I need to do that body of work? Okay, granted, I got it. You shouldn't force the entire front line into an executive presence course. Um, it's not as relevant to them. But ultimately, am I, um, if I intentionally, I being any of you as L&D professionals, are advising on the types of programs that people should be able to get into and access, if you are segmenting by saying, you know what, you're on a manufacturing line, so you really don't need communication skills, you need to be uh, better enabled to use that um, performance support tool. That's how we need to do. And that's generally how L&D professionals yeah. think is like, okay, let's put you in your box. Um, and, and keep if, you if there. I can go, yeah, and, and if I can go into a much more provocative word, let's segregate you by um, your current skill set and the exact skills you'll need for the job before. And I think that works in a world where you don't need any surplus. Like if the world was in perfect harmony and balance, that would be great. Except for we look around and we see there's been a short a shortage of folks to serve as frontline leaders. That's a role that is in dramatic need no matter which business I'm talking to. They need more people in leadership and management roles, especially for frontline folks. Um, maybe what they need is data analysts. The world needs more data analysts right now. And so if what we do is manage everybody to their box and we specifically advise our internal and external um, uh, clients to be really finite about what skills they're helping people develop, 
then we are essentially reinforcing that segregated system of skill haves and skill have nots. And the only folks who are going to get into career mobility, into that lattice job, that horizontal job, um, is if we make the decision when we're advising and we say, I know that it doesn't seem applicable for this audience, but let's create that opt-in module. So if they wanna go deeper in this, they can. Let's create space for them to raise their hand that what they want is to know how to do communications, that they want to know how to present big ideas to people, that they want to know how to collaborate. Let's create space for people to get skills outside of their box in a way that creates career mobility for them in the future. That is the way we as uh, learning and talent development professionals start to tip the table in favor of career mobility for all employees rather than giving skills to the haves where we just reinforce people who already have a lot of skills to have more uh, instead of creating what is like a net new larger labor force that every employer needs right now is they need more talent in places to build for whatever their future products and solutions are. Yeah. And I'm hearing so much too around the like accessibility piece, right. Of making it accessible for people. Like that's a yeah. big piece of like, like what I'm taking away as well of like, you know, it's part of that segregation is that we're just not giving people access to take it to, to, to if they choose to. Right. And so I think right. that's an important piece to, to think about of what is like, where, where are we gatekeeping and why are, are we gatekeeping yes. and what, yes. what is that? What are the implications of that too? And I wonder, you know, where, when you think about what we just kind of had talked about right now, like where do the idea of, of durable skills fit in there? Because <laughs> I've, I read an article that you wrote about, and I've actually, you, you talked about it a couple of years ago, but I've heard more and more yeah. people talk about it uh, recently. And so one of the things that you wrote, uh, and I wrote this down here, so I did not botch your words. You said, in order to develop talent mobility that enables frontline employees to meet our longer term needs, there's another critical step, investing in durable skills. So what, yeah. I mean, what is a durable skill? Why don't we start there? And then, you know, how, how do we focus on building those? Like, where do those durable skills align with what we're talking about in terms of that skill segregation? Yeah. Uh, I mean, this whole idea of skill segregation, that concept of durable and perishable skills is so fundamental to this whole piece. Let's start with examples of durable skills. I think this is where I'm going to like poke the bear just a little bit, that the whole poke world away. in terms poke of, <laughs> the, the world has gone to like skills being this, oh, the half-life of the skill is growing shorter and shorter every year. And um, we can't curse. Can you beat me out on, on the podcast? Like, I think that's utter. You can curse. I'll, I'll, you can cur I'm, I'm going to give, I'm I'm give you the rural Arkansas version. That's just hogwash. Like, that's just, <laughs> that is, um, it's not true. Here, here's, here's what is changing. There are skills that if you're a learning designer and you are like using a authoring tool today, you're right. That is a very perishable skill. The features on that particular application are going to change 12 months from now. If you're a classroom facilitator and you're using some uh, quiz tool, survey tool in a class, yes, that knowing how to use that tool is going to change. That's a perishable skill. And it is indeed going to change with some level of regular, flex, uh, regular regularity. Um, that was a double. It's going to change with regularity. Um, there are other pieces that don't change. The durable skills are the ability for a learning designer, an experienced designer out there to uh, derive practical application, not just author the content in it. The durable skills, the part where you decide what goes into the program what should be there and what shouldn't be there? What is something that needs to be applied learning versus not? What is something that is performance support versus not? That knowledge is not something that turns over every two and a half or three years. That knowledge is not something that changes every seven years. That's something that changes on a longer horizon. And so if you learn that skill, it's a more durable skill. If I can teach you that. The other example that I use often, it's in that article, is I talk a lot about Agile is the concept of like, do I know how to write an agile story in uh, JIRA? That is a perishable skill. In that partic particular system, the fields are gonna change. The names of the fields are gonna change. The processes you use internally on 
uh, how to manage that uh, particular field are going to change. Who's going to read it? Which report does it show up in? Those are all very perishable skills, knowing how to do that, which is why they're really good for performance support. Um, then there's the other side of it that's really durable, which is the ability to take a really long-term project that you're trying to create transformation and figure out how to chunk that thing into a discernible, digestible, applicable uh, concept to go do today, whether you're building a product or building a learning course or iterating uh, in, in software, like it is that thing by which if I learn how to create a narrative, let's, let's, let's take another example, which is storytelling. If you're talking about a seller audience, maybe you're training a seller audience, Knowing how to tell a particular story is a perishable skill because that story is going to change. It's going to move. It's not going to matter anymore. The go-to-market motion is going to change, whatever that thing is. What you're selling is going to change. The ability to be a good storyteller in front of a room that helps people connect both head and heart to the idea that you're communicating is a story that, I mean, is a skill that lasts you for, for decades. And so if what we do, this is this whole idea of segregation where we end up segregating the skills delivered. And what we say to our frontline employees is we mostly train them on the systems they need to use, which are always changing, the processes they need to use, which are always changing. And as a result, we're not building the kind of fundamental durable skills that are transferable into another department and will last them for a really long time. If you're an executive, Nobody's teaching you how to use the system to manage your expenses. Nobody's teaching you about the latest in Outlook. What they're teaching you is they're sending you to a two-day work camp on executive communications. They're sending you to a two-day workshop on how to better ideate through design thinking. They're teaching you to operate at this whole different level of skills that are going to last you for many, many, many years to come, no matter what job you land in. And so this important piece of going into a program, and it's actually what I was advocating for when I'm saying as a learning designer, if you show up to a program and what they say is, oh, we're doing an update in this particular platform and they need to know this field has changed from this to this. Yes, you should train on that because it's their job. And if they don't know how to do that, everybody's in trouble. But the question you should ask yourself is, is there some durable skill that I can help build at the same time that I give them this perishable skill that makes them more value to the company outside of just the moment they hit submit in this process, but instead helps them think about this thing differently for the future and identify ways to solve problems for us internally? I really love that too, because I think, you know, so many people who are listening, they're in all different types of, of L&D roles or transitioning into L&D for the first time. And I think there's many people who are probably individual contributors who aren't part yeah. of the overall learning and development strategy, but you don't have yeah. to be a part of the overall learning and development strategy to think about what you just said, which is, okay, I'm teaching this more perishable skill, but how can I, What where does the durable skill lie in this? And, and beyond yeah. just, again, hitting submit. And I, it almost made me think of, um, I was a political science major for a little bit until I realized how dirty and nasty politics <laughs> were. But and, and, and the reason why I love it, I thought about this is because, you know, so many different, like, you know, anytime a bill gets passed, you know, everyone's trying to attach on their little riders to yeah. it. And I almost like to think of like, okay, you have this kind of, I'll, I'll use about this shitty bill in front of you. You have to teach this, you know, this person has to learn how to use this system, but like what rider could you add on to it? And like sneak yeah. in essentially to help them with that, that more durable skills. Like that's, that's how I imagined it where it's like, it can be yeah. something that's even more low key and yeah, it's not part of your scope, but you're really thinking like a true learning and development professional of how, how can I really, and I believe our, like, many of us are in this profession because we want to help people succeed in their careers. Yes. We have to look at it from the lens of not just teaching them to do their job right now in this moment, but how can they be more durable and creating that accessibility, even if it wasn't asked for, of you? Yeah. I, I, you know, I really think of it on a spectrum. I'm going to oversimplify in a way. I don't hear many people say this, but if, if I oversimplify our field, there's kind of a spectrum between, uh, we, we say the phrase learning and development, but there's kind of a spectrum where we're talking about performance and performance support on one side, 
And then on the opposite side, we have talent development where performance support is like, can I get you the tool you need to perform this task better over the next five minutes? There's talent development that thinks on a much longer horizon for the organization, a year, two years, three years. And then there's learning that's in this middle space where it's something you can retain, but ultimately may not matter as much in the future. It's gaining a skill for right this moment. Um, I, I think a lot of our field tends to specialize in one area or another. We think too much about talent strategy and talent development. We think too much about performance support, or we think somewhere in the middle. Um, instead of thinking, how do I transverse all the way across these skills so that we have relevancy, so that the learner has relevancy for the business today, but that we are also building talent pipelines and people who can be mobile in the company for years to come and loyal and save us money and hopefully grow. I, I love the story that Walmart's CEO like pushed buggies in high school. Like he understands the business at a whole different level because he's worked at different levels inside the organization. I think I want to see more people who've worked customer interacting in business get into leadership roles. And that only happens if people like us make sure that the programs we're building develop a robust set of skills so that people have value outside of today's role, but into the next one. Yeah. And I think that aligns too with this idea. And I've heard you talk about this as well in terms of this, this, our world as a whole is becoming increasingly more skills-based too, right? So it's like, we have, we yeah. kind of have no choice, but to, to get to that transversing of, of, of that, that, that spectrum, because with the way that our world has moved into this more skills-based, we can't just sit in one, one of those spots. So what what does being in this more skills-based world and skills-based workforce, what does that mean in terms of how we as L&D on that spectrum reimagine career and talent mobility inside of our organizations? Yeah, I think this is where, um, what, what's funny is if you talk to most employees, they don't really care about the word skills. I think a lot of folks in L&D and in marketing for different platforms in the market are like, skills, 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 skills. <laughs> if you go talk to employees, they're not like, oh, I wonder what skills I'm going to grow today. What they do think <laughs> is like, where's, where's my career going? What's my yeah. next step? How am I going to get there? And I think we have to, um, the role of learning is to live at the intersection of the skills people need but doing it in a, at the skills the business needs, but doing it in a way that frames up opportunity for employees in the future. I think the better we can do that, if we put on our marketing hats as learning and development professionals, and we can talk to the business and say, here are the skills that you need, and we're going to solve those skills with this program. And then we look at the employees and say, these skills are valuable so that you can do the job you need today, perform well and get access to promotions and new responsibilities uh, so that you can grow your career in the future. I think we live in that intersection. I do think the business is talking about skills, but ultimately, I don't hear that the business cares, cares about that's not that's not fair. Let me let me rephrase. That. I was about to go somewhere and I don't want to be too hyperbolic here. Um, let me say it this way. The business first and foremost loves skills because it is a more granular way of seeing what someone is capable of, what the needs of the business are and matching the two. It is on one hand, nothing more than a data packet. We could give it a number instead of a name and to a certain degree, the business wouldn't care because ultimately what they need is they need 232, which is the skill we can call it executive call communication. It off the library. <laughs> and right. And, and then the, there's a human that matches that thing. And so the reason that skills have really taken off is because it is a way of putting data packets to humans and jobs and projects in a way that lets the business more granularly manage whether or not they have the right supply demand mix inside the business. And frankly, because of cloud computing and like SaaS platforms are always evolving and companies that have more software engineers, then the skills are changing more frequently in that technical area. And so it is much more difficult to match people to those needs. And so this data packet called skills really helps us do that. I do think there is the reality of like how we frame what we do is not just like learning, 
but a thing that somebody can take and do when they walk outside the room. I think there's a certain power to not just helping people have the skill. I'm, let me let me go on a soapbox here for a moment. I think uh -huh. sometimes we we think about higher education in particular, and we're like, eh, it's not really skills you're developing; it's courses you're completing or a degree that you earn. In what is a degree if it's not like a package of 300 skills that you walk out of school with that you can write things and present things and research things and you know more about particular topics. The problem is we don't give people the ability to talk about that education in the in the language of skills. So they don't walk out of the, the program like knowing how to articulate that. I think they don't walk out of our programs in L&D with much clearer view of skills. Yeah. At Guild, we're working really hard both with our learning partners and our own coaches who are on the phone with employees to help them articulate their skills in a way that helps create mobility. If you can't say it, like here's the example I go through, I talk about regularly. My sister is a hairstylist. Um, and and if you called my sister, she doesn't have a college degree. She has a, a license from the state of Arkansas on um, doing hair. But ultimately my sister over and above being a hairstylist, that's her business. Like she owns it. She manages a PL. She has to do word of mouth marketing campaigns. She picks who, what local uh, team to put her name on the back of the or on the front of the jersey for. So, like, she is more than a hairstylist that some might put her in a box at, but she doesn't know how to articulate her skill. I mean, I'm her brother, so she regularly hears from me about all the skills that she has. <laughs> she but, knows now. <laughs> but she, otherwise, she wouldn't know how to articulate the skills that she has in a way that seems relevant to the business. I think we also have an obligation while we're skilling people to help them learn how to talk about it in a way that makes uh, a hiring manager go, oh yeah, you can do that. You learn that thing. You've done projects with it you're ready to come do this for me as internal talent. I don't have to look out in the market to find those people. I actually have those people here working for me today. Yeah, I think that goes along the lines too of like what what our role can be in that, right? Where we know, hey, we're, we're, we're creating, we're developing this experience around maybe this particular skill. Well, we're, yes, people are walking away hopefully with the skill or some sort of that skill, but can they articulate that skill too? And making that be that almost that rider, right? Add that rider onto that, to that, that learning that you're yeah. creating of making sure that they not only are, you know, utilizing the skill, have the capabilities to do it, whatever it may be, but that they're, they, they are able to articulate it for their own career mobility, because to your point, and I, that's mo most of my clients who I work with, even people who are have in L&D, been in L&D and created, you know, skills-based learning programs, they have a very hard time articulating their own set of skills. And so we do a lot, yeah. that's, I do a lot of work around how do we now break down everything that you've done to your point, just about your sister, right? That we go back and we, we actually tease everything out and say, well, that, that whole program that you created that you think you just did this one thing, you actually did 50 things, you know, and, yeah. and which, which one right. of those things did you enjoy doing, which gave you energy? What, you know, what was the most exciting part of it? And it, 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 I always say when they, when they rewrite their resumes, it's almost like their reintroduction to the world of, oh, wow, these are all the things I'm actually capable of. I just didn't know it because no one ever told me I was utilizing that skill, right? And so I think that's a big part of, of what yeah. our ownership is from a, a talent development perspective and making sure people are aware of not only like what it is they're learning, but how to to articulate that that as well. Yeah, I, I would give even an example of a really, uh, you do since you do so much coaching of L&D professionals, like let me give an example Instead of just saying, I know how to use this particular platform, uh, I can use Exonify to write a, a micro learning. You, you should say that, right? Say that you have that. And then there's a separate skill. If you've done that like three times, four times, then there's another skill, which is a quick adoption of new platforms of how to, how to design for new platforms. That's a skill that you should articulate so that an employer who's thinking about you can say not just do you use my platform, but you have a whole history of adopting new platforms quickly. It's not just about being an expert in one, it is the durable skill of adopting to new platforms regularly to deliver whatever is needed for the sake Absolutely. of Absolutely. And uh, you can keep going. You can keep going in that, right? Maybe you maybe you then trained other people in it. Well, now you could train the trainer or technology implementation, right? Like you could you could really go down that that list as well. And so I think it's important to to 
people, so many people focus and say, oh, I did this one thing and then I have this one yeah. skill, but really it's, it's almost like the, you know, like the Russian stacking dolls. It's like, if you take it apart, you're actually, you know, you have right. all of these skills that just kind of stacked under, under another one. So I know yeah. we're, we're getting close to time and I want to talk, my, my last big question for you is, is in this idea of skill development, more particularly probably skill development for ourselves as L&D. So I've seen in my own work, a lot of people confuse the idea of actual focused, you know, skill development in the learning and development space with more of this like drive-by approach to learning, and I'm using air quotes, uh, you know, oh. every new tool, fad, technology, and they call that skill development, right? Like, so so I think they'll get yeah. a lot of use out of our previous conversation today. Uh, I saw a post on yours, and I actually, I was just interviewed for another podcast uh, yesterday, which I know you're actually going to be on soon, Abigail Wheeler's podcast. Oh, yeah. Um, and I actually talked about you on this podcast about, since we're having, I'm having a very meta experience right now, because <laughs> I talked about this this post that you did, I literally laughed out loud where you equated this idea of us like learning all of these new fads to uh, technology fads and L&D fads to weight loss fads, which I thought was so clever, right? That we're like, you know, as a society, it's like, oh, you know, eat this cookie, drink this, and you'll, you'll lose 50 pounds. And we see that in the L&D space too, like download this technology, bring this in. And yeah, my question, yeah. kind of last final question to you is, how do we start to sift through all the noise of the new, the shiny, the fads to identify what it is we should be focusing on for our own career development and our own career mobility as L&D practitioners? Yeah, I I, I want to talk about this. I appreciate that's very flattering um, The for you to call it clever. I um, Here's what happened is that particular day, somebody had uh, messaged me. And they were asking me for a novel insight on skills. And I thought to myself, like insight generation is a part of my job, like seeing what's happening in the market and trying to make sense of, does this really stick? Does it matter? It's actually a really big part of what I do every day. And I thought to myself, oh, for God's sake, you haven't done the last thing I told you as an insight. Why are you on my door again, asking me for something novel and in it? I am not going to find something on the market and just hand it to you. And suddenly it's going to fix the problem that you're trying to skill thousands of people all at the same time. It's hard, y'all. Like that's yeah. the bottom line. Skilling is hard. It's work. Um, and for me, of course, my brain went to, uh, for folks who are listening by podcast, you can't see, I'm a big guy. Uh, so my brain went to how much I would love for somebody to show up at my door and be like, I've got you this pill, which I guess they kind of have that right yeah, now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but here's, a, here's this pill or the here's this machine that you're going to sit on and it's like going to melt the pounds away. I think we've yeah. all been looking for that. And the truth is, I know what I need to do. It is hard work and I don't want to do it. I don't. I don't want to do it. I physically have a lot of pain, so it's really hard for me to do it. And so I don't want to do it. But that's the work I need to do. So anyway, that's that example for me on um, why that whole thing came to mind. Um, so I, but I think, the, um, if I were talking to an L and D professional right now and they were like, uh, you know, I saw this new thing, I saw this new thing. And I, 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 I am not saying don't be interested in the new things because I think knowing what's happening in the market is important. Like I think finding voices you trust and who speak regularly about new platforms that is absolutely worth your time. If you want to grow and have see, see career mobility in your own field, then you can't be closed mindset. You've got to be growth mindset looking for new opportunities. But what you have to do in those moments is like carve out what is the part of your time that's about getting better at the core durable skills that you need versus what is the time like so so like let me tier this in different areas. Number one, what advice do I give is find people that you trust to evaluate new platforms out there to help you. There are people who do it all the time. Start to listen to those voices and the questions they ask and the way that they ponder that. And like, you'll get better leads than if you just get exciting, excited about every marketing email that hits your inbox. Number two, be intentional about where you want to grow and develop. Don't chase everything. So maybe you are developing a specialty in performance support and what you want to do is around micro learning then great, like stay focused on the things that are dropping in your mailbox about um, micro learning. Look at folks like Exonify or Qstream or others who are doing a really great job of that 
see what research they're putting out. And then number three, read all of that stuff with a critical eye. Like I, I'm gonna be forever the skeptic because I have a BA in history and what we had to do was read primary documents. But like, sometimes you just need to look at the statements on a website or the information coming in and just go, doesn't even, that doesn't pass the sanity check. That doesn't, I think we, as we have seen in recent years, America is having a hard time digesting through reality and yes. the things we want to believe are true. Like this is where we have to learn this kind of critical analysis of uh, tools, platform, marketing statements. You have to ask yourself, is this an industry report that tells me this is a really good tool to use? In that case, I believe it more, or is this a piece of marketing? which I still find interesting, but I need to look at it through a critical eye and ex examine the data that I find there. Is this somebody who's a personality who's being paid to say this to me right now? That doesn't mean what they're saying is not true. It just means that I need to be a little more thoughtful about how I take them at their word. I work for Guild, y'all. I'm gonna say things that are reflective about how amazing Guild is, there's a reason I choose to work here. Like I've chosen to stay here and intertwine my personal reputation with the reputation of guilt. Um, I believe deeply in it. So you should examine my statements, but let me just tell you, as a human who also does industry analysis, I'm pretty, I play the skeptic and I push on the data. That's, that's the job of all of us is to not just buy it because somebody sold it to us, but to really figure out what serves me well, who do I trust? And how do I take a critical lens to what's coming in? And then, yeah, pick it up and play with it. Don't try and sell that stuff inside your organization without you getting a pilot access to an environment, trying it and seeing if it works or not. Don't stick your reputation on so I didn't talk about Guild publicly for months after I came to work here. I want to see the data. Show me the data. Show me who's doing what. Let's see what impact it's having on the lives of people. And once I saw the data, I said, okay, I'm in. Let's go talk about it. I love it. Yeah, you may not be a pastor, but you are taking us to church and we love it. We love it. My head was about to fall off from nodding so much. I just, yeah, I had a client yesterday who came to me and said, oh, I, I got, I found this statistic or this, you know, this video, whatever. And I was like, okay, let me, let me look into it. And I couldn't find any other data in the entire yeah. internet, you know, supporting that. Uh, and I was like, yeah, that's what, that's one person's opinion. Great. Like that's their opinion, right. but there's no other data supporting that. So I, I love everything that you just, just said. So everyone, if you just go back and, you know, hit the, hit the back, back button, you know, to 30 seconds and just re <laughs> re listen to that. So I know we are at time and I know that everyone, if they're not following you already, they're going to want to connect with you, learn from you. Uh, where can people find you, connect with you, learn from you, learn more about the work that you're doing at Guild? Tell us all the things. Yeah, hit me on LinkedIn. That's the place where I most regularly uh, publish. So LinkedIn slash in slash Matthew J. Daniel, or just type in Matthew J. Daniel. Um, J, not because I'm pretentious, because uh, I have two first names. So uh, <laughs> so anyway, Matthew J. Daniel, find me there. And you'll see I regularly am reposting analyst data and sharing data of the research we do at Guild. And also just talking about what matters, I think, in the world. We you, you said something and like, this is how I want to end it, Sarah, is you said something a moment ago that I think is so important, which is almost every one of us in this field of learning and development got into it because we thought we could make the lives, the lives of other people better. And I think over time, people surrender more and more to process and theory and all those things are important. They should feed into us. Um, they surrender into learning about the tools and being a SME and those things. Again, all important. But I think some point we let die inside of us the whole reason that we got into this field in the first place. And we aren't the like radical pushers that we once were. And I think ultimately, if I hope that everybody that's listening to this takes away is like, go make the world better. That's what you signed up for. It's what you wanted. It's the opportunity that you have. It's the place you get to play in the universe. And by God, you get paid to go do it. So go do it. Go add value to the lives of other people. Do what's right for the business so that you matter, but do what's right for the individuals so that you have a lasting legacy and impact on the lives of other people. Amen. Amen. All right. <laughs> Matthew, this was so fun. I'm looking at the clock and I wish that our time had not gone by uh, as fast as it had. Uh, thank you so much for coming yeah, on, for you. sharing your wealth thank of you. knowledge and for being able to talk about all of these, these topics in terms of 
you know, what our role is in, in skill development and durable skills and being able to better equip workforces to create opportunities, not only for our own career mobility, for but for th those around us and for remembering our why as to why we're in this industry in the first place. Yeah. We have so many incredible, durable and transferable skills. We could go anywhere. We could do anything with the skills that we have, but we're choosing to be here in learning and development and coming back to that why and using that as our, our force of good. Uh, I can't thank you enough for, for coming in and spreading that message. So thank you for, for your time today. It was so special. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening to the L&D Career Club podcast. If today's episode sparked anything inside you, I would love to hear about it. Feel free to share your ahas and takeaways by sending me a message on LinkedIn or Instagram or by leaving a podcast review. And if you want more support on your L&D career journey, I invite you to join us inside the L&D Career Club membership, where we are redefining what it looks like to grow in your L&D career. Visit theovernighttrainer.com slash programs for more information and to activate your membership. See y'all back here next week.